listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. My name is Alex Cox. In this episode, Executive Director Charles Brownstein sits down with Image Publisher and author Eric Stevenson. They sit down at a cafe in the middle of Manhattan here in New York City, and the street noise is a little bit much, but between the honks and the people yelling at them from the sidewalk, they have a great discussion about censorship and some of Eric's current work, including Nowhere Men and They're Not Like Us. This podcast and all of our ongoing education program is brought to you by donors like yourself and support from the Gaiman Foundation. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Charles Brownstein and Eric Stevenson. So this is Charles Brownstein, Executive Director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And today on the CBLDF podcast, we are at a cafe outside of Book Expo America with Eric Stevenson, the writer of They're Not Like Us and Nowhere Men, the publisher of Image Comics, and a longtime friend of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Hey, Eric. Hey, Charles. Um, so in 2012, you edited the Liberty Annual under the theme, It's Good to Be Free. Tell me about how that theme resonates with you and informs your practices as a publisher and as a writer. Well, you know, I think it's, it's, it's funny because I think it's easy for people to, especially here in the United States, to kind of overuse the word free or the, the word freedom. But uh, I know that as far as what we do at Image, uh, freedom is very much kind of built into our DNA. It's, it's, it's that, that is what guides us in terms of how we deal with, with writers and artists and the type of material we publish. Um, because as a company founded on the principle that uh, the best comics are creator-owned comics, um, we're, we're, we're letting letting the writers and artists we work with call, call the shots on everything they do. They, 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 they have virtually unlimited freedom to, to produce the kind of comics that, that they want to do without any kind of editorial interference. Um, And that's interesting in that it, it's we we don't do like a lot of super politically motivated comics, but I think that we do a lot of stuff that that is a very direct representation of what the people we work with want to do, and and, and the kind of the kind of stories that they want to tell, the kind of art they want to produce. Um, and I think that's important. I think that it's it's I think it's one of the things that makes Image special, and I think it's one of the things that really kind of makes comics special and that, that just by nature of the medium that we're able to do stuff that you might not be able to do in other other entertainment mediums uh, in some cases because people just aren't paying the same amount of attention to it um, and to a certain degree because I, I just think that there is an ability to get away with more in comics than, than, than almost anything else and, 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 and I think that's good for New York and what do you think is possible in comics? Let's, let's expand a little bit on this idea that you can get away with more, that comics has more freedom than other media. Um, a, why, and B, what does comics do with that freedom? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one, comics... It's what can comics do with that, and, you know, obviously in some cases 
you have you have writers and artists who really push boundaries on, on things, or you have guys who are, who are doing uh, you know kind of, kind of kind of typical work. Um, I think the people who are pushing boundaries with stuff, whether it's whether it's political material or just kind of off-color humor. Um, I mean, I mean, it's like if you look at some of the stuff like Matt and Chip are doing on Sex Criminals or, or kind of the, the side project they did, Just the Tips, where it's like a lot of really body, raunchy, you know, sex humor. Um, I think it's important to have that stuff out there because it, it's kind of kind of kind of sets the sets the bar for. for what we can do and what we can do more of. Um, I think Howard Jenkins done that a lot with, with with some of the work we've published by him too. It's like he's 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 really. I mean, Howard has really kind of pushed the limits in terms of, of, of sex and comics. Um, and I think that I think that if we didn't have people doing that type of stuff. we would just kind of get more of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish that there was a little bit more, I mean, at least in U.S. comics, it's like I, I, I wish there was a little bit more kind of politically motivated comics. I think that that's something that we could definitely benefit from and something that I think that, uh, that there's definitely a lot of interesting material to be to be mined there. Um, I mean, especially going into an election year. Um, but for whatever reason, it's... it's Maybe your perspective on this is different, but I mean, it just seems like that politics has never been a big part of American comics. You know, it's, it's like you look at places like France and stuff like that, and it's it, it comes up again and again and what they do. But here, it's just something that people don't really kind of touch on. We've been researching that a lot. Uh, Alex Cox, the deputy director at CBLDF, has been putting together uh, both a history of magazine comics from the 1960s through the 1980s called uh, Spinner Rack Revolution. And the Liberty Annual that he's editing is an explicit homage to National Lampoon and that kind of style of political adults-only humor that was very robust in the 1970s. You know, on I think the mainstream level and things like uh, National Lampoon. I think on the kid level, even Mad Magazine had more bite in the 70s than you know kids media has today. And then you know somewhere in the late 80s, you know Spy Magazine died. you know, and, and, and satire just became a little bit more toothless just in general in the States, which I don't really understand why that happens. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Um, it, it, it's almost, it, it's funny, it's something that I see, whether it's music or whether it's film or TV, that, 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 that people in the audience are accusing uh, writers and musicians or directors of being too preachy, and it's like, you know, don't, don't tell me what to think, I don't want politics to enter into this, why can't I just, you know, you know watch this or listen to this or read this and have a good time. And to, to me, that's kind of like head in the sand uh, territory, and, 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 and I don't get where that came from, but it's something that's definitely manifested, you know, over the last you know, 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, th- I think it's kind of dangerous if you don't, you know, protest things in your art. Um, just, 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 just kind of going along with everything and being entertained is not. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's where we want to be. 
Um, but yeah, it's 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 it, and it, it's funny because it's like uh, you know you, you look at the Charlie Hebdo stuff and, and it's 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 like you have I, I think the reaction to that in the United States was so different from the reaction to that elsewhere just because it's not something that people relate to at this point over here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's it's like that that that. Struggling to find the word here, but uh, it, it's like that, 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 that kind of head in the sand mentality, where it's, it's, it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, like, don't, why, 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 why poke that hornet's nest or, or whatever? It's just like, well, no, that's 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 how political like cartooning yeah. works, you know. Um, so it's it's it, it's a weird thing that kind of comes from this, like, like, like you get the, the the people who are saying like, oh, don't don't you know. Don't, don't criticize the president or don't do this or whatever and it's like well no you those criticizing or criticism is kind of part of, of what that stuff is all about um, it, yeah it's definitely part of the job you know of being an artist it's definitely right. part of the job of um, of being a creative person and one of the things you know contrasting early earlier periods of popular culture with today is that we seem to have a lower threshold for being offended right now than we did in the past. Right. And I don't know where that's going, both in terms of protecting speech, because with Charlie Hebdo, you definitely saw the, I don't think they should have drawn that because it was offensive. And you can argue about the good taste of it. It was clearly not in good taste. But, you know, it's very hard to argue that they shouldn't be allowed to do that, and yet I definitely saw that attitude coming out. Yeah, well, it's weird because it's it's like everybody has a different notion of what good taste is. Um, it, it's like you and I can both be offended by two separate things um, to different degrees, and I, 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 it's a real slippery slope to get on if we're going to start telling people what they can and can't say or do because it offends various slivers of, 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 of society. And, and so it's like, yeah, you have 100% right to be offended, but also people should have the right to, to offend. Um, it's, it's, it, it, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's a weird thing. It, it, it's like, here, here, here in the United States, it's like, you, you, you can, you, you, you can be a Nazi. You can, you can, you can, you can be, you know, you, you can be racist, you can be whatever, and I personally find that offensive. It's like I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't believe in those things. But at the same time, I think that it's wrong to tell people that they can't exercise their beliefs. Um, you know, they can't harm people with their beliefs. But uh, that, that's kind of part of you know. It, it's like going going back to what you originally asked about freedom. It's like well, that's that's the whole reason that our country supposedly exists. Is it's like like we came here to to get away from you know uh, oppression in, in in the European countries that, that uh, we came from, and uh, it seems kind of counterproductive to, to, to kind of set up the same system here, which is basically what we've done over you know, increasingly over the last the last several years. Right. Have you had to manage, um, how have you had to manage offensive content as a publisher 
both in terms of managing what the creators want to bring to the table and being an advocate for the creator, uh, as well as just managing, um, you know, how this stuff is, is handled in, in, in marketing. Well, here's, here's an interesting thing. Like, you know, with, with, with Saga, um, we, we've had a couple of incidents. Uh, first off, when when we initially promoted the book, you know, the first issue cover, uh, we've, we've got a character on the front. She's breastfeeding, um, and, and uh, it's Dave Dorman, I believe, it, it didn't come out and said, you know, this, this is terrible. We've got this woman breastfeeding on the cover of this book. And it's like, there's, there's nothing offensive about that, I, I, I would think, to most people. Um, but for whatever reason, there are some people who are offended by the image of a woman breastfeeding. Um, there were bookstores that uh, I would go into where they had racked the trade paperback back cover out uh, so that they weren't showing the uh, uh, the front cover image of, of Alana and Hazel. Um, and uh, around the time that we started planning on doing the hardcover, uh, which Brian had the idea of, like, okay, well, if that offended people, we're, we're, we're going to have a close-up shot of, of, of Hazel at Alana's breast, and then we're going to have, have, you know, our, 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 our two worlds in the background that, that, that form the, the, the warring planets in the story. Uh, so that, as, as he described it, so we're, we're going to have these two sets of orbs. Um, <laughs> and at that point, it was, it, it, it's... You know, I thought that was a great idea, and I said, just something to consider. There, there are bookstores who, who rack your book differently from other books because of the image on the volume one trade. Something to keep in mind with this with this cover. You, you should do whatever you want, but I think you should be aware that this is this is something that's out there, which just made Brian want to do it more. And, and, that's, and I think that's great. It's, it's like he's, he's making a stand for something that really he shouldn't have to make a stand. Um, similarly, there's the... It was issue 12 of, of, of a comic that uh, wound up being taken down from Comicsology because of uh, some of the sexual content in the book. And... That's something we, that not just with Saga, but we've run into that with Sex Criminals, with Black Kiss, with Joe Casey's Sex. Um, that, you know, we frequently get stuff bumped back from uh, Comixology because of, of, almost always because of sexual content. It's, it's, it's a really weird double standard where, like, violence, you know, you can have somebody's head getting split open, you can, you know, dismember a body in whatever way you want, but, you know... If, if, if there's nudity or, or, or some kind of sex act being performed, even in the most subtle way, that's that's that, that's out of line. Um, and in those situations, there, there, there's there's never a point where I tell a creator stop doing that. Um, it, it's like if that's if, if that's how they want the story to to be presented, then that's that, that that's how it's going to be. I mean, I mean, you've read Saga, you you, you know, it's like it's it's not like that stuff is there just to, to titillate. It's, right. It's, it's all there for a reason. And uh, 
right and Fiona plan out everything that they do in the book very, very carefully. And again, I think that's one of the important things that we do with Image is, is we let them do that. It's, it's like we're not going to, it's, it's like if you go back to some of the problems Mark Miller had with DC when he was writing The Authority and, and stuff that was changed in that because it was deemed offensive. That's that's just not how we interact with creators in Image. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that when you talk about books like Saga or Sex or Sex Criminals or Black Kiss or Minimum Wage, books that are engaging in really frank adult subject matter, that these are all fairly viable propositions now, mm-hmm. you know, with varying degrees of success, of course, but, you know, 20 years ago, every single one of those books would have been in the adults-only section of a comic book store. Right. Not a single one would have made the New York Times bestseller list. So what do you think has changed to make this kind of content viable in comic book storytelling now? I don't think it's just comic book storytelling. I think it's, it's, part of it is, I I think, is the culture overall, because, like, like, focusing specifically on something like minimum wage, I I think that what Bob does with that book is is pretty similar to, to, like, what Louis C.K. is doing on Louis or uh, Mark Maron on the Mark Maron Show. Um, it's, it's very real and raw and adult. Um, and it's, a, it's a pretty accurate depiction of, of you know, this is how people are at a certain stage in their life. Um, and I think Bob's done a really good job of, again, he's, he, he's... Any of the sex that's in that book is not there to, to like, shock or startle and titillate people. It's, it, it's all just part of, of Rob's life. Is it? Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's uh, you know, another another example of that is it's like, uh, obviously, gender-wise, it's the complete opposite, but like, I think Girls is very similar, too. It's very frank in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in how sex is handled, and I think that that's... I mean, actually, I think that's kind of a positive development in American culture because we definitely weren't there for, for a very long time, and I think that we probably still have a long way to go as far as how that stuff is dealt with. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that, that's one of the things that kind of makes Apple's stance on some of this stuff very weird. Is it's like I, I feel like that the culture has kind of moved further ahead than Apple. Mm-hmm. It was just. It, their, their, their rules on, on content are, are very strange and kind of archaic at this point. Um, so yeah, it's I, I, I mean I think I think that what's happening with comics is, is is really just a reflection of what's going on with, with, with culture in general, and, and that some of the I think some of the gatekeepers of that type of stuff have kind of backed off a little bit, and, and, and if you look at TV or you look at Really, really, I think TV is probably one of the one of the the, the best things to look at, just because the the variety of content and, and kind of the realness of some of the stuff that, that especially is on cable at this point, I, I, I think has really opened the door for people to kind of express things a lot more honestly and a lot more frankly. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that we have to deal with all the time at the fund is that. I think you're right. I think that there is a greater appetite on a cultural level for Frank, or as I think you put it well, realness and content. 
but you know at the same time you are seeing increases in attempts to restrict that content at least on the local levels right you know last year's saga was the sixth most banned and challenged book in the united states um according to the american library association um persepolis by marjane satrapi was number two and drama by Raina telgemeier was number 10 and you know there you've got books for young readers teen readers and adult readers all facing frequent challenges saying this doesn't belong you know in the community so there's definitely a cultural tension that is happening on local levels that local institutions are having to hash out now fortunately groups like cbldf are there to provide expert resources for the librarians that are fighting this stuff or there to create guidance for the readers that are trying to navigate it but as a publisher of this content as a creator of content speaking frankly to an adult audience what are your insights into these challenges and what are your words for the librarians that are you know at risk of losing their jobs or their livelihoods for providing it to their community well it's tough because I mean it's like I mean, speaking for myself, it's it's like I, I live in Berkeley. Image is based in Berkeley, and the Bay Area is you know we, we're in a pretty uh, we're, we're we're pretty lucky to be where we're at. I mean, it, it, it's like the, the the political climate is very different there. What what makes it into schools and into libraries is very different than it is in other parts of the country. Um, and I think that sometimes it's. A little hard to consider what what some of these situations are like in, in, in other communities because it's it's we're so far removed from that. But and, and I would expect that you kind of are too here in, in sure. New York. It's, it's it's just a different outlook on things. Um, and on one hand, it's easy to, to 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 say, well, you know, you should fight for this stuff because you know it's just like if you look at you know Persepolis Saga. Uh, yeah, these, these 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 are things that are worth having in libraries, and, and I think that it's it's like like it's it's kind of mind-boggling that someone would want to ban this stuff to begin with, and it's just like you know it's it's funny though because actually at the BEA today there there was uh, a woman with a group of, of girls, and they were looking at the comics on the table, and, and, and one of them was Saga, and, and one of the girls picked up and was slipping through Saga, and she saw, you know, like, a naked breast, and, and she's like, oh, you need to put that down. You, oh, you, we, we need to go away from here and go someplace and, and, and look at stuff that has more value, which was just, like, such a strange react. It's like, you don't even know what this is. All you're doing is reacting to this, this, this one image. Um, and we also had people who came by the booth and, and uh, not just our booth, but also IDW's booth, because uh, there's a top shelf book that's coming out called The Story of My Tits, uh-huh. uh, which is, you know... So it's, it's a it's, breast cancer survivor. Yeah, yeah. Right and now, obviously yeah. it's a provocative title, but uh, there was a guy who was very upset about that. He's like, look at this filth, and it's like, it's not what it is at all. And then, like, with Bitch Planet, there are, there are people who have reacted to that, and they've been like, although they're just publishing anything now to, to just get a rise out of people, and it's like... It's almost like willful misunderstanding of what the... Not even misunderstanding, like not even attempting to understand what, what, what the actual content is. 
Um, and I think that's kind of the closest that I've come personally to being like, oh yeah, some of this stuff does bug people. Um, so yeah, to just say, oh hey, you need to fight for this stuff and, 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 and have it in the libraries, even though you might be risking your, 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 your job or your funding or whatever, that's... like I can't just say that and, and, and then you know it's like yeah you want people to, to, to be willing to fight for, for this type of material or, or other similar material um, but it's a difficult position it, 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 it's like it's, it's yeah I mean it, 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 it's, it's kind of discouraging in a way that it, it is you know it's like a minute ago it's like yeah culturally we've, we've, we've moved very far ahead in terms of the acceptance of certain types of material but then there, there are still these pockets within, you know, the United States, especially, that where people just don't accept certain things, and it's it's that's that's kind of a tough question to grapple with. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to it's easy to get caught up in which books are banned. It's easy to get caught up in the statistics of it, but you know, fundamentally, it comes down to the audience that we're serving, whether we're a intellectual freedom professional, like a librarian or a teacher or, you know, an editor, um, you know, whether we're a creator, you know, making the content, it all comes down to what is the audience deriving from the content that makes right. it worth fighting for. And, and, and is the audience willing to fight okay, for it? Because right. that's the other thing, too, is it's like... Kind of going back to your original question, it's like I, 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 I think the people who are in libraries and schools who want to support this type of material and, and, and want to make sure that it's available to readers, that they need to engage the audience to support the material as well. It's like it's like if if if, if a librarian is going to support the material, that's ultimately useless unless the audience that they're trying to reach is going to support the material too, because. Uh, there has to be a certain amount of activism on the part of, of readers just to stand up and say, or to vote, or, or however, you know, it, it, it's, it's like whether, whether, it's, whether it's doing it uh, when you vote, whether it's going to, you know, town hall meetings or whatever, uh, you know, you have to come out in support of this stuff if you want it to exist. Um, and it's like, it's kind of like we were talking the other day, it's like activism is more than just, you know, going on Twitter and saying you like something or, or wearing a t-shirt, it's like you actually have to come out and, and stand up for something. And I think that definitely in smaller communities where libraries are under attack from you know, various conservative groups or church groups or whatever, I, I think that it's important for, for the people to come out and support the libraries and make it clear that they want this type of material available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation uh, about the audience needing to to show their commitment to it. One of the things that's really interesting about comics over the last ten years is that the audience has been changing dramatically, right. and you're seeing it in the kinds of material that's being supported. Uh, certainly, the label that you run um, has content for audiences that just weren't here twenty right. years ago in the kinds of numbers that they are now. So. Who are these people? What are they interested in? And how is the audience... What potential do we have to continue to bring new audiences into comics? 
Well, I tell you, the thing, the thing that I have noticed that I think that they're most interested in is we have an audience that is interested in stories as opposed to characters. Um, but I think a lot of the comics audience throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, very character-driven. Um, people were fans of certain characters. And, and those, those, those fans still exist, but I, I think that that dominated the conversation in comics. Um, whereas now, I think that there are people who just want that they, 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 they want to read compelling stories. Um, in terms of where they're coming from, it's like I've talked before. It's like like you know, it's not like a, a, a switch was thrown. It's like oh, we're all of a sudden going to start doing material that, that appeals to different audiences. It's I, I think. Number one, you had people who grew up during the 80s, during the 90s, who were exposed to different types of material than uh, the generation of creators before them, and and I think they're doing the type of stories that they that they want to read. Um, it's 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 it, it, go, it goes back to, to like the, the Stan Lee story about how the Fantastic Four started, and that, that he he you know figured he was going to be leaving comics anyway, so he was going to write. The, the, the type of thing he wanted to read, the type of superhero comic that, that, that would appeal to him. And that worked during the 60s, and I don't think that that approach works now, but I think what does work now is, is the kind of things we're seeing with, like, Saga or Rich Planet or Sex Criminals, um, all of which... Again, it's, it's like I think people are reading those books for the story, not for, you know, it's like I'm sure there are fans of like Marco or Alana or whatever, but it's like I, I think you're a Saga fan. You're not a fan of any specific character, even if, even if you do have characters you like. But, um, but that it's, it's, it's all very personal, story-driven material. Um, and, I, and I think it's kind of... going to get more of that stuff. It, it, it's going to be really exciting to see that like the, the, the people who are reading books like that now, who are inspired to write and draw comics, are going to be doing stuff that's even different and even even more varied and diverse. Um, and I think that kind of the more that pattern continues to unfold, we're going to see an even broader readership. Um, point of the interview, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, go ahead. No, but it's, it's just it's just an interesting thing. It's like, like uh, someone had asked me in an interview a while ago about, you know, it's like, you know, why aren't there more women doing doing comics? And it's like, there's an increasing number of women doing comics. Um, not all of them are doing comics in print, either. It's like some of them, it, it, it's like there, there, there are a lot of great female creators working in, in web comics. And I think part of that is like, okay, we're, we're, we're looking at what's available in terms of, uh, of free comics that are being published. We're, we're, we're not seeing a lot of opportunities, so we're going to make our own opportunity. And then bleeding out from that into print, you know, you have people, you have editors or, or whatever, looking at the talent that's out there and saying, okay, we want to get these people on, on, on print books. Um, but the reason I think that they're in the past, that, that they're 
were, were fewer women writing comics is because the market itself was not producing comics that women wanted to read. So you, you had less of that audience that was aspiring to work in, 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 in the field. Um, I think that as there has been more 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 content that appeals to to all readers, that you have more people wanting to create comics. Um, and that goes the same for, for what, whether you're talking about gender or race, whatever. I, I, I think that the more that the the more we do with comics and show what comics can be, the more types of people want to participate in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as, as that goes on, that, that's that's where that audience comes from. Is it's like, oh, they're doing this now. It's it's. I mean, it's it's. it's, it's for, for years, people had this notion that comics were just for kids. Then, starting in the 70s, going into the 80s, it's like, oh, no, wait, there is there is more adult-type content that, 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 that appeals to a, a wider audience. So then you get a different readership. And I, I, think, I think every time you add a component to what comics can do, you get a, a, a different segment of readers who are interested in, in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I'd like to shift gears into your own writing. Uh, Nowhere Man arrived after a long hiatus from publishing. You'd done uh, some superhero books for Extreme Studios, written a um, a slice of life relationship story. Um, was that this one? Long Hot, long Hot Summer. Thank you. Uh, edited Four Letter Word uh, Worlds, um, and then you know came back after a few years with this kind of fully formed world of uh, Nowhere Man, and so I'd like to ask you about what brought you back, um, why the time was right for you to become a creator in your own right in this fashion. Well, the weird thing about Nowhere Man was that that it, 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 it's not like I had ever stopped writing. Um, kind of the hang-up with that was that around the time that I was doing Long Hot Summer and, and, and Four Letter Worlds, uh, I was working on Nowhere Men, and, and I went through a succession of different artists that uh, it was a very stop-and-go sort of thing. It's like I would find someone who would start working on the book, and then something would happen. Um, for a long period after Image moved up to Berkeley, um, I was working with one specific artist who who I was very happy to be working with, and, and, and he did some great stuff. But he, uh, I think the first thing that happened was that he he, he got carpal tunnel syndrome mm-hmm. as a result of uh, the work he did at his day job, so he couldn't draw for a while. I, I kind of waited that out. Um, that took a significant amount of time, and then uh, when he came back from that, he kind of realized that he needed to just focus on his day job and, and make, make make drawing something that he did for fun and not, not something he wanted to pursue as a career. So that was like, okay, I put a couple of years into this guy and this this this, this wound up being a dead end. Um, so after that, I, I, I spent some time looking for a new artist and... Uh, probably about a year and a half between that and finding Nate. And, and then when I found Nate, uh, I kind of knew that he wasn't the, he wasn't a monthly guy. Um, so we had we had the backlog material and, and, and we started working on that. So it, 
there, there was a long period of, of doing work on the book without without any work being seen by the public. How, how did the work mutate in that time? Because when it came out, it really struck a resonant chord with readers that you know this is this is a certain worldview that we're interested in. Right. Um, I know that it's well, it changed in a couple of ways, and, and, and part of the way it changed was due to obviously Nate being the artist on the book and kind of it's like whenever you work with a different artist you you, obviously not artists all artists are created equally it's like different different guys are capable of doing different things and and I think that's one of the things that Nate brought to the table is like holy shit this guy can really like do a lot of very detailed work and, and so that that really kind of sparked my imagination to like okay we're going to put more in here uh -huh. and, and we're really going to uh, do as much as we can Nate was also the first artist I've worked with on this project who he like if I bounced an idea to him he would be like oh that's cool and then also what if we did this and so it, it became much more of a collaboration which is what I wanted out of, out of the project I, th I think that's what most writers want um but then, in addition to that, it's like we brought on uh, phonographics to do the lettering and design, and that opened up uh, the opportunity to do a lot of the, the, the in-world ads and uh, ads, interviews, things like that, just because it was like, okay, Steven is capable of doing this stuff. Instead of just talking about this stuff, we can show it. Um, and I think that is one of the biggest things that, 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 that changed the book, at least in terms of how I was approaching it, was was like, okay, well, we can do whatever we want with this. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of the more we talked about different things we wanted to do in the book, it, it just kind of grew from there. Where it was like, okay, we're going to have the credits on the back of the book. We're not going to. It's just like different different things. And it was like, let's just keep kind of tweaking the whole presentation. Um, and that wouldn't have happened if it was, yeah, I mean, if I was working with another designer or another letter, that, that may not have been mm -hmm. something we would have done. It was like, it was done very much in response to what Stephen was capable of and what Nate was not capable of. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is compelling about the world building is that you created a vision that was really invested in the optimism of intelligence, scientific achievement, and technology. Which, you know, of course, is a counter to the pop culture environment that we live in where, you know, we, we definitely thrive on this kind of culture of, you know, embarrassment and, um, you know, real world, you know, reality television that's, you know, kind of almost morbid curiosity and fascination with the tawdry. And so I'm wondering what led you to that worldview and what you were saying about both the world around us, but also the world we can build if we choose to. Uh, by depicting the world of nowhere men in that fashion. Well, uh, part, part of it very much it was being aware of like like what you described as the tawdry, like like just going to the grocery store and looking at the the tabloids and the magazines in the line and, and just the stuff that people fixate on and and around the time when when the project was really starting, which was the early two thousands. Fascination with people like Paris Hilton and, and these 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 quote unquote celebrities who really were famous for being famous, um, and then looking at the fact 
it was just something that frustrated me because it's, it's like obviously Steve Jobs was very famous for, for what he did with Apple and, and, and all of the things that have come out of that. Bill Gates is famous. You know, Stephen Hawking, he's, he's somebody that people know who he is. But, but to me, it's like they deserve their fame. Um, there's people who have changed the world in a positive way. Um, those, those, those are the people that, 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 you know, once upon a time, those were the people we allowed in as heroes. Now, the, 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 the world hero, the world genius, they're, they're, they're thrown around very kind of cavalierly. Um, and on one hand, it, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's some of it was just me being grouchy and being bothered by that stuff. But then on the other hand, it's 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 looking at uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people have focused on the Beatles aspect of things, and and it's like yeah, the Beatles were, were a popular band. Uh, you could say that if they were around today, they would. You know, it, there are a lot of people who, who, who are like, oh well, you know, you're, you're Justin Bieber's, you're Taylor Swift's. They're they're, they're no different than than the Beatles were in the 60s, but they are different because one of the fascinating things about the Beatles is they didn't just change music. They had a huge effect on culture as a whole. Um, and in a lot of ways, what they did in the 60s was every bit as important as, as what people like Steve Jobs you know, did in, in, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Um, which was kind of how I arrived at the fact that it's like, okay, these guys who started World War, they, they, they were basically like the Beatles of science, you know. It, it was like they were, you know, the four, the four most influential and famous scientists in the world. Um, and I think that's something to aspire to. It's like, it's like if you're, if you're going to be famous, be famous for someone who has changed the world, you know. It, 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 it's like being famous for a sex taper because you sang a song on Oprah is not, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's it's you. You and I were talking yesterday, and and I made a comment that you questioned, uh, where I said that I think that to to a, to a large degree we we are living in the worst time in history. And you, you said you said why why is that? And and I, I I think that my response at the time was you know this this would be the best time in, in history if if we were using all of the great things that we have developed in a positive way, but instead. We're, we're kind of squandering everything that we've developed and created. Um, and I, I guess nowhere, man, what I was trying to do was say, look, we, we, we could have this better world where we do create great things and we make great strides in terms of scientific developments, but instead of using them in careless ways, we're, we're using it all for the good of everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another piece about Nowhere Men, and this one's a little bit more, you know, inside baseball, but you grew up within the entirety of the image experiment. You know, you, right. you one of your first jobs was working at Extreme Studios, uh, you know, with Rob Liefeld in a variety of capacities. You went on to, um, you know, work at Image Central, uh, you know, with Jim Valentino and Eric Larson, eventually becoming the publisher. And so, you know, you've always been an aspect of this experiment that began with a group of very headstrong, creative and talented young men who came of age through their the labors of their intelligence and the labors of their creativity over time. How much of that influenced the characterization of the characters in, in, uh, in, in Nowhere Men? You know, I know it's funny because 
some, somebody else brought this up with me, and it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to risk anything. <laughs> Consciously, not at all. Um, subconsciously, uh, I'm good. Can I get another stuff? Yeah. Um, subconsciously, I do think that that was probably there a little bit. It's, it's something that I've gone back and, and looked at the, the six issues that we've done, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, there, there, there is a little bit of that in here. Because the type of partnership that uh, was formed by, by the Image Founders and then the type of partnership formed for World Core in the comic are very similar. They're, 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 they're you know, you got a group of artists who are kind of at the top of their game, you got a group of scientists who are at the top of their game. Friction develops, uh, and, and they have to overcome that. Um, but yeah, that was not something that I set out to, to do. Um, but a lot of people have, have, have seen that there, and I, and I think it's... Like I said, I think that it's something that was probably at the back of my mind, but wasn't something that I was like trying to chronicle in any real sure. way. Well, it is a really unique achievement that the founders were able to develop, and you know, the fact that it's spun into what it is today is not something anybody in 1994 said was feasible. Um, yes or no? I know that. Uh, thank you. It's it's funny because one of the earliest conversations I had with Jim Valentino because I, I, I worked with Jim as a, his assistant before he was publisher. It's like when he first was working with, with Rob, I, I, that's, that's how I, I kind of got my foot in the door at Image was, was, was Jim asked if I would come and help him out when Extreme was first being set up. Um, but Jim had a lot of very noble goals for Image. He, 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 he was looking at... at this point in the 80s when like independent comics it was like man we're, we're going to go to the moon and, and we're going to totally change comics and then and then black and white comics had, had their their big busts and, and things kind of got down back a notch um but i think jim was like you know what we're gonna we're gonna broaden the reach of comics and, and we're gonna publish stuff i think jim had a very ambitious outlook on what type of comics image could publish um, and it was something that he talked about with me a lot in, in the very early days. I don't think he, you know, there, there were people who criticized Image for just doing superhero comics, but I think they were all, you know, Jim, Rob, Todd, Eric, uh, Mark, they, 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 they were playing to their strengths. It's like they weren't going to go out there and say, okay, so people have been buying... Yeah, so you know, can I get a blessing today? People were buying superhero sure. comics. Uh, because those guys did those things well. It's, it's like if they all of a sudden, all of them decided they were going to do Western comics, that wasn't going to bode well for Image's future. Um, at least not at that time. Uh, but, uh, and I think Jim, like, you know, Jim did Shadowhawk because he recognized that that was, he needed to do something that was going to be commercial and, and easily accessible to the audience that was reading comics at that time, but I think that it was always at the back of his mind that that wasn't what Image should just be. He, he, he wanted Image to be publishing other stuff, and that's how, like, right away, you know, Image was doing things like The Max, and uh, Mike Girl's Shaman's Tears, and uh, different types of material that, like, some, some of it didn't hit the way it should have at the time, or could have. 
ambition there to do something more than just publish superhero comics? Mm -hmm. Let's shift back into your own writing. Um, They're Not Like Us is, you know, quite a contrast, I think, to the optimism that's present within Nowhere Man. The, the first arc is really infused with these themes of alienation, you know, and even pessimism about the ability to connect meaningfully with the world, you know, outside of this one home, this one community. And so I'd like you to talk about what inspired that dynamic and, and you know, where that set of themes and values is coming from in the book. Two, two things inspired the book as a whole. One was uh, just gr- growing up reading superhero comics. There, there, there are lots of books that involve young superheroes being mentored by an older, wiser, superpowered person. Uh, and obviously, the, the 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 easiest touchstone is the X Men, where you've got Professor X and and, and, and the younger original X Men. Um, and just the, it, it, it's not like I've been rereading Oliver Twist, but at some point I was like, really, the X Men are a different version of, of of the kids in Oliver Twist. That Fagin has has this gang of kids that, that you know he's basically teaching them to steal. Um, and thinking about that, that seems a lot more real to me than hey, we're gonna we're gonna take these kids with superpowers and train them how to help people. Um, I'm not saying that, that helping people isn't something that people do, but I, I think that the more... If, if you're talented at anything, whether it's sports or, or playing a, an instrument or writing in some way or, or creating, you, you, you use your talents to help yourself. Um, sometimes helping yourself means helping other people. Um, uh, uh, obviously, there are many wealthy doctors who are helping people, but, but they're also not doing that for free. Um, so to me, the, the idea that, that you would have this this older mentor character gathering people up so that they can do good stuff just just has always seems. I mean, it's very much fantasy. Um, as I was thinking about that stuff, and just kind of, kind of, you know, what what would people do if they if they just were born with with, with different abilities from other people? How, how, how would they handle that? Um, I got mugged a couple times, uh, uh, and the second time that happens, uh, it, it was by a group of kids, and uh, it was very clear that they weren't mugging me because they needed something. They were just doing it for fun. It was like, we, 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 we are bored, we are angry, uh, we are just going to fuck with people. Um, and it was a scary experience. And just spinning out of that in, in, in the weeks that followed and going back to kind of thinking about my creative work, I was like, wow, that, that was scary on its own. If these guys had super strength or, or, or telepathy or super speed or whatever, that makes it even more scary because because then you're being fucked with by someone who can literally do something that you cannot do and then you don't have much recourse against. And that was what really kind of kind of firmed up the approach to the book was was 
there are people in the world, and, and there are a lot of angry, frustrated young kids who, who think that things are not going to get better for them, and that this is all they've got, and they, they take it out on the world around them in, in various ways, whether it's going out and, and, and mugging people or, or vandalizing things or, you know, what, 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 what have you. Um, and so from that, I was just like, okay, so, so what if instead we, we went more to the Fagan side of things, where it's a guy saying, okay, I, I'm going to round up these kids and we're going to figure out a way how to take advantage of the world to, to, to best serve ourselves. Um, and it is a pessimistic way of looking at things, but, but I have... I work and socialize with enough people in their 20s to know that there is a very real feeling out there among that generation that, you know, that things are kind of fucked. And uh, that kind of it doesn't matter what they do, that they're not going to be able to have the life that their parents... It's like, there's that thing where it's like, Every, every parent wants their, their child to have more than they had in life, but I think that there's a generation of kids right now who really think that that's not going to happen for them, that, that things are going to be worse and worse and worse. And I think we'd like to hope that that, that inspires people to do better things, but in a lot of cases, it, it just makes people angry and frustrated and hostile. Um, so yeah, that's where a lot of that comes from. Have you met your audience on this book yet? Uh, I have not, because, you know, I don't really do signings or anything right. like that. Um, uh, I mean, I've, I've, there, there are people that I know who have read the book and who have said, yeah, this is weird, this is stuff that I think, and, and, uh, and, and there's been a little bit of, you know, I, I think some of this is overly negative, I think some of it is, you know, you're, 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 you're kind, of being, kind of being too hard on younger people um, which isn't the intention and as the book kind of grows I mean it's, it's like the book starts off with, with a very clear you can go this way or you can go that way kind of proposition um, and by the end of the first arc we, 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 we know where the lead character is going to go yeah. um, and, and we explore that more during the second arc so um, it, it's not all doom and gloom right both books convey a sense of either elitism or superiority that's rooted in ability, achievement, and success. So, are those healthy or unhealthy things? I think they're healthy things when they're managed properly. Um, and in... I think you could argue that in nowhere men it's to a large degree managed well, and then they're not like us, it's managed poorly. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's never good to close yourself off from everybody else, and I think I think that it's 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 not good for anyone to view themselves as kind of godlike, and while they're looking down on other people as being ant-like. Um, it's everybody is better than everybody else at something, um, and that's it, it. Doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it may. You may just tell better dead baby jokes than anybody else, but, but you're still the best guy at doing that. Um, 
everybody has their own unique talent, and, and I think that it's it's yeah, it's it's, it's a harmful thing to, to to look at what you do and what your talents are, and think that that makes you better than somebody else. It's like you should never focus on being better than other people. You should always just try to be the best version of yourself that you can be. Um, and that's one of the things that we're going to explore in there, not like us, is, 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 you know, with the voice during the first arc, it's like he's very much created this world for himself and the other kids that is based on elitism and, you know, we, we're, we're better than everybody else, so we're going to live a life that, uh, you know, represents that. Um... But that's a hollow life. If, if, if the only thing that is driving you is to be better than everybody else, there's 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 not much. There's nothing fulfilling about that. So, uh, the, the the next step in the story is finding out. Okay, well, what what what, what is fulfilling? So, mm-hmm. where do you want to go as a writer? Um. to do stuff that does not involve people with superpowers. Um, uh, I, 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 I think that ultimately where I want to go, and the, the stuff that interests me and the stuff that I'm doing now, whether it's Norman or They're Not Like Us, is kind of more of the interaction between the characters and just um, kind of talking about life. And I, I think that I want to do more stuff that focuses more specifically on that without any kind of other window dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess is kind of going back to... It, it's like I did that fairly effectively with Long Hot Summer. Um, and I think that kind of doing more of that type of thing is is ultimately what I would like to do. And, and, and going back to what I said earlier about the lack of political writing, um, I... I I, I, I do think ultimately that that's something that I would like to tackle as well. It's just kind of more social commentary type type work. To tie everything together, you've developed a label that provides for talent to really explore whatever it is that their imagination wants to and achieve the risks and rewards, you know, that come with it. Um, In your own creativity, you're developing a path where you are moving towards expressing more of, you know, what comes more from a worldview as opposed to what comes from, what am I going to sell that's going to, you know, pay next month's mortgage payment. And, you know, through all of this, you know, you've been a tremendous supporter both as a publisher and as a individual of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund's activities to help create an environment that protects both, you know, the creator and the publisher, you know, as well as the retailer and the librarian. And so what is it about the fund's work that's important to you as a participant in our mission that makes it something that you make time for? Well, I think it goes back to what you were asking me earlier about uh, what, I, what I would say to, to, to people in communities where books are being banned and things like that. And it, it's, it's there needs to be 
a voice in support of those sort of things. And, and, and I think that I think a lot of people misunderstand what the fund does. It's because it's, I, I, I talk to people sometimes who are like, oh, they're just trying to make sure that people can do porn comics. And it's like, and that's not what it is yeah, at right, all. It's right. like, there are these challenges to whether it's comic book stores or libraries or creators or even readers where, where people are subjected to kind of unfair laws um, and, and archaic laws and, 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 and things that really just should not stand in the way of, you know, self-expression um, and I think that the fund has done a lot of good work in terms of, of, of helping those you know, when, when, again whether it's stores or libraries or, or, or readers it's like you know everybody runs the risk of getting caught uh, in, in a bad situation by either selling or possessing uh, material in a community where for whatever reason it is deemed unacceptable um, and as long as that's a possibility, as, as, long as, as long as that can happen to literally anybody, if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, I, I, I think it's really important to have an organization that is going to offer help and, and support so that, uh, A, uh, on, on a financial level, if, 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 if that's what's needed, they, 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 they have that support, and then B, there's... there's Uh, greater exposure for what they're going through because uh, I think the fund has done a really good job of as, you know, with, with uh, the cases you've been involved and in, you know you get the word out about about what you're doing and and, and people people hear about it uh, they learn a little bit more about uh, what you're actually doing and, and the circumstances involved and I think that's important I think I, I there are a lot of charities that I think that uh, sound good or look good on paper that you never really know where the money goes or, or what is what is actually being done. But I think that kind of the level of transparency that you've established with, with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and uh, just your efforts to... get information out about what you're doing make, make, make it very, very worthwhile. Well, we certainly couldn't do it without your support, the support of Image and its creators and the folks that are listening to us today on the CBLDF podcast. So thank you much for being a part of the team that makes that work possible. We'd like to thank Eric Stevenson for sitting down with Charles for this interview, and we'd like to thank you, the listener, for downloading it and listening. If you're interested in supporting the CBLDF further, we suggest that you do. We appreciate every bit of support. Go to cbldf.org, and there you'll find all sorts of information about the work that we're doing, all sorts of current censorship news, and uh, plenty of ways to donate, including joining as a member. Today's podcast was edited and produced by myself, Alex Cox, and the theme music was by Django Reinhardt. Thank you very much, and please recommend this podcast to your friends, if you so choose, and give us a rating on iTunes, preferably a good one. Thanks. Thanks.